Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Three thousand miles from home, an American army is fighting for you. To the end. Okay, that's enough of that. No need to hear that introduction music ever again. I've heard it 90 times already and I'm fairly sick of it. I don't know about you. I'm just kidding. Welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Versailles retrospective. So here we are, 85 episodes later, nearly 8 months, we come to the end of this Whopper project. What have we learned after all of this content? What can we take away from the Peace Conference having delved into it on a scale never before seen in history podcasting or history generally. First and foremost, we learned that this is a long and laborious process, that it was long and laborious for those that laboured a century ago. Does anyone really remember what happened back in mid-March, when Wilson and Clemenceau had their first dust-up, or when Lloyd George argued about mandates? All of it seems like a big blur, impossible in many respects to actually make sense of. The sheer amount of detail and information which the conference threw up is overwhelming. It was overwhelming to the peacemakers, who emerged from the whole process utterly exhausted, and having followed their exploits chronologically, I know how they feel. I should give a shout out to my friend Wesley, who has been doing a great job with his History of the Great War podcast, which you should check out. Unlike me, Wesley decided to opt for the saner approach, and he covered the Treaty of Versailles in 16 episodes, organised by topic and theme, rather than chronologically. As Wesley himself put it, quote, trying to do a chronological telling of the story gets incredibly confusing very quickly, end quote. I think we have provided some proof of that idea, and Wesley is in good company with his thematic formula, none other than Margaret Macmillan for her tome The Peacemakers adopted the thematic approach, with some chronology sprinkled in for good measure. However, even while this project has provided its ups and downs, for me, and I'm sure, for you, we don't regret taking this chronological approach, because what I wanted above all was to capture the Peace Conference as it happened a century ago. What I do regret, I think, looking back, is not preparing folks for exactly how in-depth this journey would be. After many sad emails and some cancelled pledges, it seems clear that a number of you lovely listeners, perfectly understandably now I have to say, did not have time for a whopper monster like this Versailles project, and you didn't feel like 85 episodes was truly necessary. Believe me when I say that I understand what you mean. Unfortunately for me, though, 
my style wouldn't allow me to take any other approach than that which appears grossly overboard in retrospect. To hit all the points and cover all the details, I could do no other than an examination which went above and beyond. I had a feeling that this would leave some people behind when I started out, but it is on me that I didn't warn you guys beforehand just how out of hand this project was going to get. I hope that even if the Versailles anniversary project has scared you away though, you will return to when diplomacy fails in the future. I promise, first and foremost, not to cover any more anniversaries, but also to make our content more digestible in the future. To some extent, the fact that this was a centenary meant that my hands were sort of tied when it came to coverage. I wanted the story to trace the events that occurred almost in real time, or as close to that as I could manage. Was it overwhelming at times? Absolutely. But if I had the choice, I would do it the same way again. Well, maybe next time I would prepare several months rather than several weeks in advance, and I probably would have been warier of accepting new teaching roles in university, and maybe... I would have postponed taking on the delegation game and... Where was I again? Oh yeah, well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that I had a lot on my plate over the last few months. In fact, without hesitation, between working on this, the delegation game, and essentially learning how to be a university lecturer, I can say that I've never been busier or more stressed than I had been over the last few months. This isn't a pity party though, guys, because I'm still in one piece, Anna hasn't left me yet, and my students all did rather well, so no harm done. No lasting harm, anyway. I should also add that if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, I'll be relaxing on a beach in Sicily, so don't feel too sorry for me. I had so many plans for this project, which I never got the chance to actually take on. Believe it or not, I wanted to surprise you all with an examination of each of the peace treaties of the Central Powers. Now, I know I said in the intro that I would only be tackling Versailles, but honestly, I only said that to cover my ass in case I couldn't get those peace treaties finished. What stopped me from doing this? Well, let's just say if you haven't examined the Turkish War of Independence yet, then take it from me. That conflict is a morass which will suck in all the things you love and spit them out again as shriveled husks. Basically, I was far too ambitious and optimistic. Anna has this long-running joke where I tend to underestimate things far too much, to my detriment later on. Would Versailles not be a lot of work, she would ask? Nonsense, I would say. Everything will be fine. Should you really invent this podcast game and take it on in addition to Versailles? She asked when I described an idea I had in November 2018, which later became the delegation game. I'll be fine, dear wife. Don't be silly. How will you manage the additional hours in college on top of everything else you're doing? She asked, after I told her university had asked me to take more modules. I will manage, I replied. All it'll take is a bit of organisation and time management. Now, I don't have a TARDIS, but... If I did, I would go back in time and slap myself for being such an enormous dolt. Let's just say I won't be so ambitious ever again. I was so short of time by the time I got around to episode 50 or so that I had to do something I swore I would never do. I finally put my large ego aside and hired an editor. More specifically, I taught my sister how to edit, and ever since episode 50, pretty much 75% of the episodes have been edited by her. So in that case, a huge shout out to Sarah, who's actually editing this right now. Thanks for making me sound good and for supporting me in all of this, Sarah. You're the best, and I love you. This project has been a big part of my life for the last eight months, but even before I properly started it, I'd been planning it for an even longer time. Truth be told, the plan was born as soon as I finished the July Crisis project. After I provided such an in-depth examination, explaining how the Great War began, it was then I realised... 
an even more incredible story could be found in how they brought the war to an end. In between the rush to get other projects finished, it was only in September that I sat down and seriously began planning this thing, and it was then that I realised I don't even know where to start. So I wrote up 10 episodes, decided they weren't right, and started again, taking bits and pieces from those old 10 episodes as I went along. At some point, it occurred to me that I needed to be able to balance telling the story with critical analysis, and also with bringing the full depth of the characters forward too. This was a balancing act, which, hopefully, I managed to achieve to your satisfaction. So that begs the question, am I satisfied at the end of this project after 8 months of work, balanced at the most stressful time of my life? Unfortunately, and I can't put a finger on the reason why, I didn't find this process as satisfying as I'd hoped it'd be. Maybe it's due to the sense of exhaustion I feel, which I think is natural for anyone that spends 8 months deep in the bowels of a given topic. This makes me somewhat fearful about my sanity after 4 years in a PhD, but I'm sure I'll manage. Let's just keep that giant chocolate button bag on standby, just in case though. If I had to trace the dissatisfaction, then another thing which comes to mind is the anticlimactic ending, which I mentioned in the conclusion episode as well. There's just something really disheartening about spending eight months examining the creation of a treaty, which in the end makes many people unhappy, isn't accepted by one of its major creators, and barely lasts a generation. Also, of course, ending the project at the creation of a peace treaty is a lot less dramatic than ending it at the outbreak of the Great War, so I think the July Crisis project takes the medal in that category. On a personal note as well, Having assessed the download numbers over the last few months, I have noticed a gradual decline, which started to bug me, especially in the last month. If we could be real, just you and me for a minute, by the time I got to June, I just wanted to be rid of the whole project because I felt like listeners weren't enjoying it and I found that I wasn't enjoying it as much either. Maybe, Anna suggested, the whole thing is just too intimidating and detailed for people to feel like they can stick with it. Because of these feelings, I put up a poll in the Facebook group designed to get to the bottom of the situation. And soon I felt much better because, while some said that it just wasn't in their ballpark of interest, which is obviously fair enough, others said that they were waiting for the whole thing to come to an end before they sank their teeth into it. It seemed so obvious that people would wait until this monster was finished before they tried to get to grips with it, but that gave me the little burst of confidence and reassurance I needed to keep going to the end. I think sometimes I forget that Like any job, you do need a bit of praise from time to time, and as usual, you guys really delivered, so for all of you that are active in the Facebook group, and you should be if you're not already, thanks for pepping me up when I needed it the most. And hey, if you haven't joined it yet, go and join that Facebook group so the pepping can continue. I have received a lot of questions about exactly how I managed to do all this, and I should remind you that this is my job, or at least it was one third of my job, and it's pretty much all my job now that university lecturing and the delegation game have finished, so I have the time, or I should have the time at least, to properly put that time aside and do this project justice. This is a roundabout way of me saying that I would not have been able to imagine taking on Versailles without your guys' monetary support on Patreon. Now I'm not going to say, hey, go and support me there, but just so you know, I really do mean it when I say I couldn't do this without you. I literally could not, because nobody in their right mind would take something on like this as a hobby, or for free on top of another job. Now, as my concerned friends from my masters reminded me, those $1,700 a month which Patreon currently brings in doesn't cover all the man hours I spent on this thing. And maybe you're thinking right now, come on, Zach, 
How long did it really take anyway? Well, history friend, I would tell you, but I don't know anyone crazy enough to actually add up the amount of time, the amount of total time I spent on this project. What's that? I just calculated it all myself before writing this episode because I'm an enormous nerd for statistics? Well, isn't that fabulous? So here it is, the total amount of time of script pages and of words which we've expended on this project, including this retrospective episode and the previous conclusion. I hope you're sitting down. To begin with, if you wanted to listen to this project in its entirety and do nothing else, it would take you more than 67 hours to do so, or 67 hours, 13 minutes and 27 seconds to be precise. Multiply that by 10, a generous average for the amount of hours it takes to produce an episode, and you'll have a rough idea how long creating this monster took me. And what about pages? So, some of you have asked me to piece together all these script pages from the project, so that a full script book, if you like, can be downloaded and read from the website. I'm still toying with that idea, but I should warn you that this script book, containing every single page of this project, would consist of 1,286 pages altogether, which is a lot of reading. And what about words? I've spoken a whole load of Versailles-related lingo over the past eight months, since our first episode dropped the 11th of November last year. In fact, a whacking great total of 489,988 words have come out of my mouth and into your ears over this whole period. What are you left with when you consider all these facts and figures, and when you consider the journey we've been on since the 11th of November last year? Above all, you're left with a story. A story unequalled in human history. It is a story that is so often misunderstood that it is sometimes quite maddening to get to the bottom of what actually happened. It's a story which contains a surprising amount of dark spots, or parts which are often left out. It's a story which contains a cast of characters, flawed and inspirational, depressing and humorous, important and self-important all in their own way. There's nothing quite like the story of the Paris Peace Conference, where for six months from January to June 1919, people from across the world tried to respond to the most devastating conflict they'd ever seen, and tried to make their world a better place. There's nothing quite like the Treaty of Versailles either, a document which is so weighed down with blame for all the ills of the 20th century, I'm surprised it can be picked up at all. Ask anyone about an infamous peace treaty, and they're more likely to have heard of Versailles than any other. Through their exploits, but also their failings, the peacemakers made Versailles famous. Thanks to the fact that Versailles is not an open and shut case, few treaties in history have aroused as much controversy or debate. If we captured anything during this project, I hope we captured that. There would never be a peacemaking exercise like this again. Remember the high hopes of those involved, the grand ambitions of the smaller powers, the idealism of the victors. Remember how determined many were to avoid the mistakes of the Congress of Vienna from a century before them? There would be no grand balls that occupied several days, few snobbish occasions where the riffraff and the nobility were kept separate, and the end goal was not to recreate the balance of power, but somehow to reimagine politics altogether. The peace conference at Paris from January to June 1919 was a kind of halfway home then, between the 1815 Congress of Vienna and the negotiations which ended the Second World War. Versailles took lessons from Vienna, and in 1945, the peacemakers looked to 1919 for the sake of caution, but also some measure of inspiration. In spite of its choking defeats, there were few in 1945 who argued against the creation of some international organisation, such as the League of Nations had tried to be. Though the League failed, 
it proved to be only version 1 of the United Nations, which remains today a critical, though yes, flawed institution. One could even argue that our last podcast adventure, the Korean War, enjoyed such enormous Allied support in the first place because the members of the United Nations were terrified of their... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Institution going the same way as the league. That's what we've tried to do in this project. We've tried to underline the point that while the Treaty of Versailles was certainly not perfect, it was also not the 20th century's kiss of death as is sometimes claimed. Critics of the treaty must remember certain key points, that the peacemakers of 1919 were attempting to solve problems which had been around since 1871, that the Franco-German rivalry, at the centre of the whole problematic system, would not itself be conclusively solved until 1963, that well-meaning institutions like the League of Nations were only made to fail because of the aggression and ambition of other states, not because of its inherent problems, that no single member of the Big Four can be labelled responsible not even Woodrow Wilson, whom some of my American listeners seem to have a pathological hatred for, which overcomes all sense of reason. And let's be honest with ourselves about one thing. The Treaty of Versailles was, as we said, not perfect and contained several flaws, but there was no way everyone could possibly have been made happy by any document when everyone wanted so many different, conflicting things. So what did I learn about the Treaty of Versailles from this project? Well, let me take this time to detail 10 things I learned in no particular order to help break it down. Number 10. I didn't realise how important those small meetings were. Of first the Council of Ten, and then the Council of Four. Meeting face-to-face as the Big Four or Big Three is a famous facet of this process, but I never realised just how central the relationships were to the treaty making. Number 9. Lloyd George as the Disruptor. Before I began this project, I had no true grasp of who the most difficult of the Big Four would be. By the end, though, I think it'd be fair to say that Lloyd George ruffled the most feathers, above all through his last-minute attempt to alter the treaty in early June. This point is best captured in episode 74. Number 8. Italy's Long Shadow 
the common course of the Paris Peace Conference narrative has it that the Italians stormed out, only to return with their tails between their legs in time to see the treaty be handed to the Germans. What I didn't realise, and what the minutes truly spelled out, was how incapable of thinking or talking about anything other than Italy the big three were, once Orlando left. This obsession even led them to approve the landing at Smyrna, out of fear that Italy would do something similar if they didn't. This point is best captured in episode 63. Number 7. Clemenceau as unfairly maligned. Going into this project, I had no real idea what George Clemenceau was all about, and my knowledge was made up mostly of the mainstream version of history. I expected Clemenceau to be suffocatingly francophile, and anti-everything else, and unreasonable to the point of madness. What I found instead was an Anglophile, fluent in the English language and fluent in English culture, determined to protect France through the timed possession of the Rhineland, and far more correct about the Germans than he's given credit for. Number 6. Wilson's League I knew that Woodrow Wilson was a proponent of the League of Nations, I guess I just didn't realise how total his obsession with the League was. The President was determined to the point of fanatical that the League must be brought in, and that it would solve everything, failing to realise that in the end, the League could only do so much. Number 5. Germany's Role I was unsure of how to feel about Germany when I began this project, so it was very much a learning process for me too. I found it interesting that Germany is so often glossed over in this period, where a proper consideration of her context would do wonders for the overall narrative. The Weimar Republic, as I learned, was an imperfect response to a dire situation. But the greatest problem was the German attitude. Because the Germans came to believe that they hadn't been beaten and that the treaty had been unfair, what followed was too easy a progression. The German people, I learned, deserve more criticism for this policy and for refusing to accept their defeat. This brings me to number four. Defeat is a natural part of life. We toyed with this point in the introduction episodes and I actually dedicated a whole episode to it. The notion that Germany was defeated in 1918 and had to pay the price just like any other state is one that I've come to appreciate even more than I originally did. German objections to the Treaty of Versailles, to my mind, often seem to centre on the unreal argument that Germany was treated unfairly, to which we can reply, states were treated unfairly or harshly in defeat since history began. That's the nature of defeat, in that you must bow to the victor. To paraphrase Sally Marx, the major complaint is that the loser wasn't treated as the victor in the German case. You take any other conflict which had its peace treaty and you'll find a downcast loser while the victor lords over him. Germany, it's often said, had only just done this very thing with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in March 1918. So it has often struck me as odd that Germany subsequently cried fell over the far less insulting and damaging Treaty of Versailles, especially considering the fact that the Central Powers' other peace treaties thinking in particular of Hungary, for instance, or Turkey, which the Allies were trying to basically conquer, were far more punitive. This project reinforced the principle that the loser must pay the price for their failed gamble, however unpopular the price paying may be. If anything, the Treaty of Versailles provides us with the best answer as to why this order is important, because it was once the Germans believed that they were above this process that even worse disaster was able to strike. Number three is more technical, but still very important, and has to do with reparations. Having taken the likes of John Maynard Keynes at his word, I assumed that in spite of some good intentions, reparations was the one area where the Allies really fell down, because they lumped a bill of 132 billion gold marks onto the Germans, and the Germans could never have possibly paid this. 
In fact, I went into this project with that number in mind, and what a joy it was to encounter the revisionist studies of the late Sally Marks, who utterly exposed the fundamental falsehoods behind those numbers. In fact, as Marx explained, the actual bill for the Germans was closer to 40 billion, and the Germans in time would only pay, and very reluctantly pay, 20 billion. Using reparations as a reason to why the Second World War happened, in other words, does not cut the mustard anymore, because it simply isn't true. If anything, it was the French who were wronged by reparations, and the Germans who chanced their arm, because they refused to deliver the goods on time, and dragged their feet every step of the way. When the French reacted accordingly with the occupation of the Ruhr in 1923, the British cried foul, having by that point mostly bought into the idea that the Treaty of Versailles was a terrible crime. Number 2. The very strange structure to the negotiations of the German treaty absolutely astounded me. I had never imagined anything so important could be so haphazard and chaotic, that it wasn't until the 7th of May that a draft treaty was proposed, and that the Big Four hadn't even read its 440 articles was one strike against them, that the Germans were allowed to dawdle for three weeks before presenting their detailed counter-proposals was another. By the time Lloyd George decided that actually the Germans kind of had a point, and maybe we should change this treaty, lads, nothing really surprised me anymore, but I was still struck by how ad hoc the whole process seemed. At no point, for instance, did anyone say, hey, wouldn't it be cool to sign the treaty on the fifth anniversary of Franz Ferdinand's assassination? It just sort of happened that way once the delays placed the Allies in a certain position. In my mind, the scene of Ulrich von Brockdorf Ransau running against the terms on the 7th of May and the Germans arriving to sign on the 28th of June were both the same scene. I had no idea before starting this project that the Germans arrived to take the terms before then spending nearly two months considering them. I also never realised how early the Germans had arrived on the 28th of April, when the conference was still rather young. And the final thing I learned, point number one, remember this is in no particular order, is Bolshevism. By that I mean, before going into this project, I knew a bit about the Russian Civil War, but it never occurred to me just how central the Bolshevik problem was in the minds of the peacemakers. Perhaps the most galling aspect of the problem for them was that they could do very little about it. In fact, the big four seemed powerless to stop the tide of Bolshevism, as it ripped through Berlin, Budapest and Munich, causing no end of troubles and freaking out everyone in Paris who imagined that the end was nigh for Western civilization. These fears were of course exaggerated, but we should not forget just how large the Bolshevik problem loomed in their consciousnesses. Before the Allies effectively gave up on Russia in May, they tried several time-consuming approaches to the Russian problem, including a conference of all these interested parties in Russia and sending a mission headed by William C. Bullitt. Remember him? I also never realised just how militarily involved the Allies were. Although their support for the Whites and for Admiral Kolchak proved woefully insufficient in the end, several thousand soldiers were hosted in different Russian theatres, so that the Big Three could never completely ignore what was happening in Russia, even if they were never fully informed or knowledgeable enough about the situation to properly do anything. Of course, we've learned more than just those ten things. I've never tackled a project with so many themes, characters, or terms to understand. I have never ever tackled a project this enormous before, in the entire life cycle of this podcast, and my examination was far more detailed than many books out there, or at the very least, it's much longer. Like those peacemakers who expended eight months of their lives on this piece, I feel like I've been at this for far, far longer than eight months. Like them as well, 
I won't soon forget this eight-month period of my life, because it was so much more significant than its eight-month duration might suggest. A small percentage of my life, so it was, as it was theirs, but the impact of this percentage was profound. I don't imagine that this Versailles anniversary project will set the world on fire, as the real Treaty of Versailles did. All I ask is that when history enthusiasts think of this treaty, they'll know where to go to get the most insanely detailed examination of it. I hope that in time, the Versailles anniversary project will become as beloved a project as the July crisis anniversary project. This time, five years ago, I was only beginning to send that project's early episodes out into the world. I was only beginning a journey which would bring me all the way here. It's almost fitting that after all these years, the July crisis, the Great War, and now the Treaty of Versailles have all been brought together. I can't help but feel that after all this time, we've finally come full circle. Before we finish up, I should say a note about my sources. The bibliography is now available online from the website, and I'll attach the link here in case you missed that. A shout-out must go to both Questia and JSTOR, without which this project would have been far less detailed, and would essentially have involved me reading from Macmillan's Peacemakers, though certainly there's nothing wrong with doing that. You could actually do far worse than thumbing through that great book, as I've done over the last several months. A quick glance at my copy with its folded pages and crumpled cover tells its own story, as I've brought that book around with me an awful lot of the last few months, from planes to trains to, well, actually yes, automobiles as well. Anyone interested in picking up the story or going back on certain points should definitely track Macmillan's book down. I should also add that without the great work of the folks at Yale, we would never have read House's Innermost Thoughts, and without the work of the people who arranged the Foreign Relations of the United States papers and digitised those minutes, the minutes of the Council of Ten and Council of Four, and many other minutes and treaties besides, would remain a mystery to us as well. Full links and further details about those sources are all available in the bibliography, but I think it's fair to say that this project has been massively improved by the quality of work out there. If the size of this project didn't give it away, then the size of the bibliography should. My list of sources runs longer than 30 pages, and contains nearly 400 individual items, including 261 academic articles alone, and over 90 books. It was a mammoth effort to bring all of these things together, but the scholarly record which is left over stands as a testament to the story you can create if you lean on the right people. I am, as I have said before, standing on the shoulders of giants. So thanks for your research, dear giants, and I hope I did your hard work justice here. So thanks for listening in, whether you've listened to parts of this project ad hoc, whether you've been a total nerd and listened as the episodes were released day by day, or whether you simply jumped in here for the concluding episodes and see how we wrapped things up. Thanks so much for being there for this very special project and for making this crazy thing actually possible. I think we've earned a break from this era, at least for now, but for those wanting me to cover the interwar period, I will say, first of all, never say never. I might return to the future. I might return in the future to examine it. Secondly, though, make sure you do check out the excellent Great War YouTube channel, which has almost been following my narrative in this project. Maybe they're doing it on purpose, and they plan to continue their examination into the future, but in YouTube form. I also think that after eight months of solid content, we've earned a break from podcasting full stop. So, with maybe a few exceptions, mostly for patrons where we're finishing up Suez, this is goodbye, history friends, until Monday the 9th of September 2019. 
If you're massively behind, then don't worry. From September, as we begin our PhD in history at long last, I also plan to significantly reduce our schedule to about two episodes a month, or once every two weeks, with episodes of Poland Is Not Yet Lost, our new series, also beginning in September and releasing in between. So if you are drowned in content at the moment, enjoy your break and your chance to catch up, and when we resume, you should find this whole listening malarkey much more manageable. I look forward to seeing you then, but until we sink our teeth into the Thirty Years' War, I just want to say thanks again for joining me, and regardless of how tired I might sound, how roasted my vocal cords might sound or might actually be at this very moment, I just wanted to say, this is not goodbye for good. It's only goodbye for now. To finish though, and I wanted to say, for the last time, for a long time, that my name is Zach, and I have been your very nerdy, always learning, always fascinated host for this project for the last eight months, and hopefully for more projects into the future. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll be seeing you all again on the 9th of September. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.